0: Welcome to When I Was Your Age, a podcast where we explore themes such as deconstruction, anti-racism, and justice from the lens of authors, speakers, and activists who explain what they wish they knew when they were our age. Wanda G. Anderson is a native New Yorker who has lived in Colorado Springs for the past 24 years. She has been a licensed attorney for the last 30 years, serving as legal counsel for multiple companies and organizations, as well as being on a number of community boards. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Mass Media with honors from Hampton University, where she was initiated into the Gamma Theta chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, as well as her Juris Doctor degree from Regent University School of Law. In addition to all of this, Wanda has also been the co-pastor of Solid Rock Christian Center with her husband and senior pastor, Reverend Benjamin Anderson, since 2006. Known affectionately to me as Mama Wanda, she enjoys motivational speaking and providing women with educational and spiritual resources and considers herself a justice midwife through her published poetry, in her speaking engagements, and in her leadership roles within various nonprofit organizations. Here's Wanda G. Anderson, the queen from Queens. All right, so the first question I have for you, Mama Wanda, is uh, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Um, You can just tell us anything, it could be related to faith, race, really whatever you want to share.
1: All right, sure. Well, I was raised in a section of New York City called South Jamaica, Queens, and I was asked a question the other day, what prompted my interest in social justice? And I shared a story that really um, was very pivotal in my life. When I was about 10 years old and growing up in South Jamaica, Queens, New York, it was a tough place to grow up. It was um, a a community of marginalized people, primarily communities of color, people of color, African-Americans at the time. Uh, The neighborhood has since changed dramatically since then. But um, at the time, growing up in the early 70s, it was a tough place. There was a lot of gang activity and um, there was not a good um, police and community engagement environment. So when I was about, it was about 10, 11, maybe going on 11, something happened that changed the course of my life. Um, a little African-American boy who was 10 years old was gunned down by a white police officer. Mm. And it happened in my neighborhood. And uh, this little boy and his father were walking at five o'clock in the morning to the father's job where he was going to open up a gas station. And apparently there was an all points bulletin about an attempted robbery of a taxi cab driver in New York City. And they had the suspects listed as two black men in their 20s. Well, an unmarked police car pulled up on this father and son who were walking to the gas station. They got out of their cars and they pulled guns on them. And the two, the father and son, began to run, thinking that they were going to be victims of a robbery Mm -hmm. not knowing that these were police officers right so as they begin to run the police officers at least one of them pulled a gun and shot the little boy dead Mm -hmm. as he was lying on the ground the white police officer made a comment about another little black n-word gone and that the good guys had won yeah. This was captured on the police radio. Wow. Well, at this point, you know, and the father is still alive. So he's witnessing everything. The police tell their their captains that they were in fear of their lives because this little boy pulled a gun on them. Now, of course, there was never any gun. Mm-hmm. There was never even a toy gun. There was no weapon of any kind. And the father could attest to that. But for the first time in New York City, in the history of New York City, a police officer was charged with murder in the line of duty. Mm, I think the police, the uh, police radios were kind of implicating that there was foul play going on. So this police officer was charged with murder. Um, He went before a jury of 12, 11 white men and one black woman. And he was subsequently acquitted of all charges. Mm. My community erupted. The rage was palpable. There were protests and then there were riots for weeks. Mm. And I had a front row seat to those riots. I saw cars overturned. I saw police in riot gear with batons and and shields. And I saw the community just so outraged and so outdone. I saw looting. I saw fires. I saw a lot of violence. And I was probably 10 going on 11.
0: Mm.
1: That one event disrupted my innocence and it created an awakening in my soul for racial justice
0: yeah.
1: at that young age. Wow. And what it did for me was that it prompted me to become a reader. Mm-hmm. And my parents had a, a pretty vast library in their house of African-American history books and, and um, books that were authored by African-Americans and, and record albums when vinyl was popular back then <laughs> of, of, of uh, poetry. Nikki Giovanni being one of my favorites. Yes. You know, it was just it was it was a a treasure trove of information that I could dive into. And I did. Mm -hmm. When I was 13, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I read the 700 plus volume of the book Roots authored by um, Alex Haley. And I became this activist as a young teenager, Mm. and I began writing, and I began writing poetry about justice, and I've been writing ever since. So I grew up in a time where um, I was awakened to the societal ills and the disparities within communities of color that were marginalized And um, that was something that I think was such a pivotal event for me growing up in New York City, sort of in the heart of seeing all of this and taking it all in and trying to process it through my young mind, but also having the benefit of parents who were very well read and very well versed in these types of things. And so none of this was off limits in terms of processing and communicating. And I, I thank God that I had a safe space in which to do it. But it did impact me for the rest of my life, mm. and it, it, it became the framework for me to begin to look at my life's work in a way that um, was meaningful and purposeful. As I went to school, and as I went on to become an attorney, and as I found myself in largely white spaces, in communities of faith, and parachurch organizations, recognizing that me being one of only was really a strategic assignment by God Mm. to do some consciousness raising and to really increase my own self-awareness as to who I am as a, as an African-American woman in white evangelical spaces and um, what that means in my role as a leader and as a voice.
0: Mm. Thank you. Um, So you now like you have like a background in law and you're also co-pastor of Solid Rock Church in Colorado Springs. <laughs> <laughs> um and so I was wondering if you could speak into maybe you touched on it a little bit but maybe how your faith intersects with um this passion for social justice.
1: Yeah. Great question. Thank you. <laughs> I think the two go hand in hand. You know, Jesus himself was an advocate for the marginalized. He was countercultural. He did things that society said he shouldn't have done. He spoke to Samaritans. He interfaced with women. He revealed his deity and his messianic assignment to women before he did to men. He uh, hung out with those who were on the fringes of society. When people told him, oh, you should not be having dinner with tax collectors. You should not be speaking to women. You should not be um, addressing crowds of, of people who have physical disabilities and actually touching them. And you should not be regarding children as more valuable than adults. He did everything that was counter cultural and he challenged the empire Mm. and he spoke truth to power Mm -hmm. and so I see that there is a an intersectionality there is a partnership a synergy between faith and justice it really stems from the biblical narratives
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay I agree (laughs) Um, but maybe how would you respond to someone who thinks that either they are separate or maybe like I've heard like people tell me because I'm low-key an activist girl out here and I've been in white evangelical spaces and people kind of got upset uh, for me when I um, would like disrupt the peace I guess and Mm -hmm. so what would you say to people who are like oh god doesn't really care about race or like kind of have the colorblind mentality Mm -hmm. how would you respond to that
1: yeah colorblindness is um really akin to tone deafness if you say that that color does not matter to god then it really really in effect strips god of his ability to be the master of diversity and inclusion which he really was. He created a plethora of skin tones and colors in our environment and in creation because he felt it was good and pleasing. And so for us to take the the position that that color doesn't matter is really anathema to God. It really lies who God is as a creator and as a creative. Now, we all know that race is a social construct. The Bible says that we are from one race, but many nations. But we have taken and, and just blown apart the whole imago Dei, the image of God, where we are created in his image and, and we have We have really trampled on humanity through God's perspective by saying, based upon your skin tone and your skin color, there will be a hierarchy of classes and we will determine who is in power based upon the whiteness of your skin. And the darker you are, the lower you will be on the, the totem pole or the stratus, rather. Totem pole is not a, a correct um, usage, and I apologize for that. But on the stratus, the hierarchical stratus of power. And so we find that um, people will say, well, I don't see color and I don't want to talk about color as a way to dismiss the whole uh aspect and element of systemic racism, because if I don't have to talk about color, then I don't have to talk about the impact of what color has meant in this country historically and how we have used color to intrinsically belittle and dehumanize some and give power to others. Mm. And so um, to me, the whole aspect of colorblindness and not seeing color is really um designed to be a conversation killer Mm. it really is and it it has no place in today's society because it's not true it's an outright lie you do see color Mm. because if you didn't see color then how would you even select what you're going to wear each day
0: Mm.
1: you know how would you even select what you put in your home or the car that you drive or the food that you eat. We are influenced by color. We are people who are designed to see color mm-hmm. and to appreciate the beauty of color and color differences. And oh. so, yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. And, and when I hear it from people of faith, it really is, um, it rattles me. It rattles me. Because you're basically saying, well, I don't believe in the God of creation. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that God uh, created diversity and and he was creative with creation. And so therefore, I'm not going to talk about color because I choose not to see it. It's just it's just not true. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So within like the white spaces that you have been in or still are in, um, specifically like faith spaces, um how do you um like find the balance between like when to speak up and when to like i don't know i guess educate but also yeah. as like a black woman as a minority it shouldn't be like your job to educate people so like how do you find like how do you navigate that between like educating people but also like saving your own energy
1: hmm yeah You know, I I know that, um, your podcast is called, or or, or the premise for it is what I wish I knew,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, at, at, at your age, here's one of the things I've discovered and I'm still a work in progress, Megan.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I've discovered that I can censor myself based upon my own internal messaging based upon my own, um, Um, internal biases that I have imposed upon myself because of the external messages that I've received. So I could tell myself, your voice is not wanted here. Your opinion doesn't matter here. No one wants to hear about your life experiences as a person of color in this country. I can easily tell myself that and, and convince myself that my voice is correct, that my perception is correct. But what I have been learning over the last several years, and, and, and it feels like, and because I'm a person of faith, I reference that God has orchestrated the events of my life. It feels as though God keeps putting me in these spaces as one of few or the only one to teach me some things that I still need to learn Mm. in addition to being a source of education for others. And so what I've been learning is that the more I silence myself and the more I censor myself in white evangelical spaces, because I think that's the expectation, the more offensive I am to who God called me to be. And so I'm recognizing that this has been a divine orchestration, a divine setup, if you will, over the last 30 years. Where I started out, I went to an HBCU, and I was in a wonderfully affirming, supportive environment in my undergrad. But then I went to a law school that was a white evangelical law school in the 1980s, when the president of the university was running for president of the United States. It was a hostile environment. I was the only African-American in my class, which was the first official class of the law school. And when I tell you that the experience was isolating, it was. What saved me was that I lived with an African-American woman as a single parent and with her children. That's what saved me, Mm -hmm. that I could go home at the end of the day and be in a safe space. So it started over 30 years ago in that environment And then it has continued where I've been placed as an attorney in these white evangelical spaces, either as a pioneer lawyer or as one of very few African-Americans on the entire staff in the building of these headquartered organizations. And so God keeps placing me in these spaces and it's like, Lord, what is up with that? What are you trying to show me? And with each successive appointment, I have developed my voice, but I have also squelched my own voice Mm -hmm. out of fear of rejection, out of fear of losing my job, out of fear of even my own power and my own ability. And so, but never, never out of obedience to God, God never told me to silence myself. He never did. Mm -hmm. But I took it upon myself to do it Mm. out of my own fear and inhibition. And so now I'm finally getting to the place, Megan, where I'm realizing, woe unto me if I don't use my voice, if I don't speak up, if I don't understand the gravity of the assignment, and my purpose in life i'm now just coming to grips with that Mm -hmm. and it's taken me so long and that is probably the biggest regret of my life Mm. that it's taken me this long it's been a journey but i'm finally understanding what it's been about all this time and it's not only been about me using my voice to be again a tool of education and consciousness raising but it's been about god showing me that I need my own consciousness raised to finally embrace that as a as a black woman, as a leader, as a as a minister of the gospel, that as a poet, as an artist, as a creative, that he has given me platforms and spaces in which to express and to use what he's given me. And 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 woe be unto me if I don't do it. Mm. I feel a compulsion now to do it because if i don't i feel like a part of me will die yeah and i wish that i had that desperation earlier on i wish that i had that awareness earlier on Mm.
0: Mm. that's good so on the kind of like on the flip side of that has there ever been like a time where you maybe i don't know not doubted god but like you kind of it was hard to understand circumstances um that were happening around you kind of like i don't know when people are like why do bad things happen to good people or like um Mm -hmm. like specifically um in terms of like racism and like systemic racism that's happening here Mm -hmm. um but it could be just in general and then like how like what did you do with those feelings i Mm
1: -hmm. guess you know when i was in high school um, the the television series Roots by Alex Haley was aired on television, and that was pretty controversial, and it was monumental. Mm. It was unprecedented to see the American history um, through the slave narrative be portrayed on television, and it included some very well known actors. But what it did was it created um, almost kind of like where we are today. It created um, a climate in the country of of major discomfort. And so when I was in high school, I went to um, a small Lutheran high school in another part of Queens. And I remember after that show came on, and it was aired on TV for several nights. I was coming out of um, a gospel choir rehearsal after school, me and several other African-American students. And we were physically attacked by some of the neighborhood kids Mm. who um, were Irish Catholic in the neighborhood, who made it very, very apparent to us that they didn't think we belonged in their neighborhood. And they took baseball bats and broken glass, and they began to attack us. And I remember screaming at the top of my lungs and and, and running and feeling helpless. And our principal came out and he was uh, a middle-aged white man, and he was attacked, he was beaten up. And I remember that some of the African-American students, the male students who were also staying after school, they ran out and they started beating up the kids in the neighborhood. I mean, it was, it ended up being a race riot. Mm. And after that, I mean, I was in tears. I was hysterical because I thought all we're doing is just leaving school, walking to the bus stop. Mm -hmm. Well, after that, our parents petitioned to have police escort to and from school. And that happened for about a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it was over, but, The fear never went away, Mm. wondering if we were going to be safe. And then some of the white students in the school who had cars, they offered to give the black kids rides home Mm. because they felt badly that we were going through this. And they knew that it was not a safe environment for us. And through no fault of our own, we were the subject of, of this violent display of racism daily and so some of them decided that it was no longer safe for us to stay at the bus stop and they offered to give us rides home i was also on the track team so that that kept me after school for a while in addition to the music program but yeah that was probably my first um encounter of being in an actual race riot up close and personal and being a victim of that and that was where i cried out to god and i said why are you allowing this what is wrong with humanity and um and i was probably as much of as much of an activist as i was um and and as much of a um a budding feminist as i was there was also some pacifism in me that didn't didn't agree with a violent approach to um, working through and, and addressing racism, and so that was that was a, a wake up call for me, and that's when I cried out to God and said, "What in the world are you allowing?" And now today, many years later, I find myself asking the same thing. I know that Martin the King, Doctor King, said that the moral arc of justice is very long. Uh, the moral arc of, of of humanity is long, but it, it points towards justice. But that arc is much longer than we realize mm. because we're still talking about the same things. You know, 50 years later, we're still talking about the same thing. And so my question has been, God, I know that you're God of justice, but how long are you going to allow this to take place?
0: Yeah.
1: And, and what is your plan in all of this?
0: Mm.
1: Because right now it just seems like the wicked are flourishing. Yeah. And, and those who are, who are oppressed, are dying on the vine when are you gonna step in and so quite honestly that has been the cry of my heart Mm. I don't have an answer yeah but you know just to keep it real I have been asking God that Mm -hmm. because it just seems like it's taking a very long time yeah yeah identity I am a black girl A sun-kissed, brown-eyed, curly-haired Black girl. My presence unapologetically brings disruption to the homogenous atmosphere. I am a Black girl. Ever-dreaming, always praying, a non-stop thinking, Bible-preaching, poetry-writing, pioneering Black girl. Laboring in places of misidentification, where my personhood and competence are silently questioned, thrust into melanin-challenged environments, cloaked in feigned courtesies and forced smiles, all the while repressing, restrained indignation. Overcoming the sting of historical reminders that despite the adversity, I am still here. It is my nature to survive and thrive, I am a black girl. Five generations from the middle passage, I see the faces of those who saw me afar off in their dreams and whose hearts beat in prophetic rhythm with mine on ancient shores, praying for their progeny to one day be free. I am a black girl. An intuitive, compassionate and complex being with an inner longing to invoke the change i've been divinely assigned to bring and to dispel the mist that my existence is inconsequential in the universe i am linked with mother africa and my ancestral yearnings derive from an incomparable and unquenchable tribe i am a black girl a fact of which I am forever proud and a burden which I bravely carry for my daughters and their daughters and beyond. I am a black girl and I matter.
0: And so you mentioned like it's kind of we're still talking about the same things and I guess what I'm trying to ask is like there's a difference between like individual and like systemic racism and a lot of people like up until i don't know recently may have thought that like racism wasn't really a thing anymore because they didn't see like individual racism in their own lives but you talked about systemic racism a little bit earlier so i was wondering if you could like maybe explain the difference between the two or like maybe for people who want to be engaged in the social justice movement or how they can like combat racism on an individual level and also a systemic level.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the major difference between individual racism and systemic racism is that with systemic racism, we have all kinds of policies and laws and systems and internal processes and all kinds of um, methodologies that are in, infused with, the, um, with historical and systemic injustice. So what that looks like is, um, you have a constitution that has codified who is human and who is not, who is property and who is not. And when you have an American society that was based upon the profitability of chattel slavery where human beings were sold into commerce in order to grow and build and develop this nation then that means that you have a system, a way of looking at things, a way of doing things that includes the dehumanization of a population of people. And in the case of racism, it is rooted in color, and uh, skin color. And so everything else that's, that comes from that foundational framework of the building of this country every law every policy every form of building communities um housing opportunities educational access the ability to vote all of those things were predicated on who and who was not considered a person and so over the years a system of discriminatory behavior has been built based upon the social construct of race but see, the, the, the writer, um, one of, one of my, my favorite authors, and, um, and his name is, is drawing a blank right now, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, mm-hmm. sorry. He says that race is the baby of racism, the father. And so we see that the social construct of race is born out of racism in the hearts of men, mankind, that then perpetuates laws, policies, governance, all kinds of lending practices, access to living in certain neighborhoods, the ability to buy a home, the ability to accumulate generational wealth, all of that is is predicated on who and who is not a person and it's been codified in our constitution the authors of the constitution were slaveholders themselves and so this system was designed to be a sustainable system it's really not broken it is mm. operating the way it was intended to
0: right
1: and for more than 400 years the system remains in place we call it by other names thanks to dog whistle politics. We call it law and order, Mm. but it's still the same. It's still the same. The outcomes are the same with individual racism. That is really a matter of the heart. And I love when people say, well, you know, I'm not not a racist and slavery happened so long ago. I'm not responsible for the actions of my forefathers and foremothers. What my ancestors did was terrible, but I have no responsibility in that. And that is a true statement on its face. However, when you look at how white society has benefited, from racist practices over the centuries, then while you yourself may not have been a participant in the development of these policies and practices, you are a beneficiary. Mm -hmm. And as a beneficiary, then you have a responsibility to help dismantle the system. Mm. And when people talk about racism on an individual level, they're basically saying, well, I should be absolved of responsibility because I did not play a part. But we really have to keep the conversation at the systemic level, because it's at the systemic level where we see the whole of, of racism playing out in the whole of society. And then it becomes a real-time, real-life reality when we keep it at the individual level people can wash their hands and say sorry had nothing to do with that i'm not a racist but if you benefit from racist policies in a racist society then you are in some ways complicit with it unless you do something to actively dismantle it and engage in anti-racist
0: mm. activities
1: and advocacy
0: yeah yeah that's good so the, like Essentially, there's a difference between, between saying, like, there's, like, racist, there's, like, saying you're not racist, but then there's anti-racist. And people mm-hmm. should be, like, moving towards, how can I not be complicit? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And, and you asked, what are some sp- specific things that people can do? Well, first of all, I would encourage, and if you're talking about white people specifically... I would encourage our white friends to really lean in into the hard conversations, because none of this is comfortable. And it's meant to be disruptive by design, because we want to disrupt a system that never should have been in the first place. It's certainly not God's intention. So we want to disrupt this thing. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can disrupt it is by leaning in and facing it and talking about it and having authentic, transparent conversations. So that's the first thing. The other thing is learn, educate yourself on the whole of American history. Because if you don't, if you have a small microcosm of the narrative of American history as taught to you in school, then you don't know American history. You just don't. Mm. You have to understand the role that chattel slavery played in the building of this country. Yeah. And and the fact that cotton and the commerce of cotton was king, but cotton as a commodity would not have existed without the slave labor
0: mm-hmm.
1: that cultivated it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that grew it, cultivated it, picked it, and bundled it, and got it ready for production purposes. Yeah. And so we have to understand that slavery, chattel slavery was a billion dollar enterprise, a billion dollar enterprise. Built on the backs of enslaved people, and so if we don't understand that aspect of history, then we look at the White House and don't get it. We look at the White House and say, "Oh, well, that was a beautiful building that was built by um indentured servants, perhaps back in you know the sixteen hundreds or whatever. no. We 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 don't understand fully and can't grasp fully the concept of how this nation became one of the greatest nations, how Wall Street even came about, and how you know the 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 billion dollar industry of of every single um, mechanism in this country that makes us one of the richest countries came about because of slave labor. Mm. If we don't have that mindset, then we've missed it completely. Mm -hmm. And then we begin to see the others, people of color, as less than, as marginalized, rather than the source of industry and wealth that this nation was able to accumulate. So learn, educate, read, lean into the conversations, and then take an active role. If you are a person of faith, regardless of what religion you are, if you believe in a higher power, ask your higher power, ask God, ask your your supreme being, what is my purpose on the earth to bring about peace Mm. and to bring about restoration? As a person of faith, we are called to be repairers of the breach. Mm. That means we repair brokenness in a broken world with broken systems and broken people. What is our role in that? Regardless of our ethnicity, we have a responsibility to humanity right. to repair brokenness. What, how do we do that?
0: Mm.
1: What is our role? What is our specific role? It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to carry a sign in protest, although that's a very good thing. It doesn't mean that you have to get on Facebook and write all kinds of things you know, to express yourself, although that's a very good thing to use social media as a platform. It doesn't mean that you have to write a check to every charity in order to express your involvement and your compassion, although that's a very good thing. It could be as simple as having a conversation with someone who doesn't look like you and asking about their experiences and, and just posturing yourself as a learner. Mm-hmm. It can start very, very small, but it has to start yeah non-action is not an option Mm. it's just not and then one of the most important things we can do for people of age in the next few weeks is vote Mm. if we don't vote we don't have a voice
0: yeah she's preaching y'all she's preaching (laughs) that's so good (laughs) I'm gonna shift it a little bit. And if this is a weird question, you don't have to answer, but I wanted to hear from you, maybe what are the hardest, or what's the hardest thing or things about being a black woman in America right now, or just throughout your life? And then on the flip side of that, what are your best or favorite things about it?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Last week was a very hard week when I realized that Brianna Taylor's death meant nothing. Mm. I was grief stricken over that. And as much as I heralded the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she has been a monumental figure in my career and development. Right. Professionally. Mm -hmm. I was I was grieved by the juxtaposition of the imagery of people just really hailing and and honoring as they should, as we should, the life of Justice Ginsburg on the steps of the Capitol and seeing the clerks in their black, paying homage and and hearing the wonderful, wonderful testimonies of people who have been impacted by her life. That was a beautiful image, but it was juxtaposed with the silence centering around the lack of an indictment from the grand jury mm-hmm. on the life of Breonna Taylor yeah. and hearing that any charges of reckless endangerment were centered around not her life, but the lives of her neighbors. Mm-hmm which was a profound statement that the lives of black women do not matter. Right. And that was a hard reality, a hard reality and processing that was very, very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where to go with that. A couple of, uh, last month I had written a poem, um, dedicated to Brianna called who will cry for me understanding prophetically that the voices crying out for Brianna would diminish over time and it took a lot fa- it, it happened a lot faster than I thought
0: right
1: yeah so that was hard that was hard recognizing that black women in America are the least valuable on the spectrum yeah. the least valuable mm-hmm. I think one of the best things about being a black woman is being a black woman, period, (laughs) you know, just period. It's all encompassing with all the, the, the fabulousness, the flavor, the, the greatness, the perseverance, the tenacity, the beauty, the, the, the artistry, the creativity, the, 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 prolific nature of black women to continue producing in spite of Mm. the repeated efforts to diminish, to demolish, to, to depress, to silence, you know, the, the tenacity of being a black woman is just the inherent tenacity of being a black woman. Mm -hmm. And knowing the lineage that I come from, that my ancestors, were were businesswomen, they were midwives, they were church planters, they were landowners, they were mothers, they were speakers, they were advocates, they were leaders in the community, and they passed on a legacy of love and empowerment to their daughters that I have benefited from and that my daughters are benefiting from. So I love being a Black woman. I'm so glad that God created me as a Black woman
0: yes a queen of a black a woman a queen a queen from queens <laughs> yes a queen yes. from queens we love it <laughs> okay so just have a couple more questions um first one is what are some recommendations maybe writers like you mentioned nikki Giovanni, i literally listened to <laughs> an interview from her yesterday and i fell in love with her um yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, but just any other writers or people who have influenced your work, your life.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. We love to share. So Alice Walker coined the term womanism. Mm. And womanism, and it's found in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And of course, Alice Walker was a feminist, um, a womanist, I should say. And there's a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Feminism especially um, historical feminism, really excluded black women from the equation. And it was all about female empowerment. But you know, when the suffrage movement occurred, it did not include black women necessarily, especially the newly freed slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so womanism came about because black women realized that, that we were not included in the feminist movement to the degree that we wanted to be, and that we had different needs than than white feminists and that we were not about male bashing but we saw men as being necessary to the family structure because in slavery our men were removed from the family and so we were not about bashing men but embracing men and really looking at the whole nuclear family structure whatever that is designed to look like Um, especially in today's society. We want to make sure that the family is functioning holistically in a way that benefits not only the family, but society. And so womanism looks at a holistic um, lifting up and support of the Black community in a way that feminism did not and would not. So my mother was um, an early womanist in the 70s in the evangelical circles. And she raised my sister and I in that same vein. And she had annual conferences for women who would travel all over the country to New York City for her women's consciousness raising seminars. Wow. And so my sister and I as little girls were introduced to that that realm of thinking. And so Alice Walker is, is one person who um, really influenced me. In terms of poetry, it was Gwendolyn Brooks and Langston Hughes and County Cullen. Mm. Um, I, I loved those early Renaissance, Harlem Renaissance writers. And I was, I was really influenced by them. Um, you know, again, Ta-Nehisi Coates is someone, um, uh, Jamar Tisby who, who wrote a book on the complicity of yeah. the color compromise, mm-hmm. the church's complicity in racism. um, There are a plethora of other authors that, and I should have had my list in front of me, but, um, you know, so many resources are out there now that we can avail ourselves of, and there's really Mm. no excuse to walk around in ignorance. You know, if you want to be woke, you have many opportunities (laughs) to to be woke. Theologically, spiritually, emotionally, racially, yeah, there's no excuse for ignorance.
0: You heard it here, folks. Mama Wanda just laid down the law. <laughs> All right. So, the last question you spoke about it a little bit earlier, but it's kind of like the namesake of the podcast is what do you wish you would have known when you were my
1: age, early 20s, that yeah. range? Mm-hmm. You know, I wish that I had known that who I was was enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I wish that, that I would have been able to listen and to hear somebody tell me that what I was given was good enough, that, that I was definitely smart enough, that my voice was necessary, And under no circumstances was it to be squelched or silenced by anyone, most of all myself. And that the value that I bring was not to be discovered in relationships with men. But that I was to discover my value through an intimate relationship with my creator. Mm -hmm. I wished I had known that.
0: Thanks for listening to the season two opener of When I Was Your Age featuring Wanda G. Anderson. We are so excited to see what this next season has in store. So stay tuned with us every other Tuesday for new episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WIWYA
1: underscore podcast. Thanks again.